I'm going to go ahead and read the 142nd Psalm. This is a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With, with my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have securely, uh, secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Ah, I just love David. Just love his psalms. Um, I, I'm going to say this before the sermon, and I'll mention it kind of in the sermon again, but uh, your brain can only handle so much at one time, and I know I give a lot of information. Um, this particular sermon is the ending of a particular dispensation in human history. We're going to see that. And um, if you have not seen the previous couple sermons, you're going to be a little bit lost. But um, I will refer to it in the sermon, but we have a panorama of what's been going on since the time of Joseph, as you have the church age, all of this church age going on. And the attention of God is going to end on the church someday in human history, and it is being pictured in today's sermon. Okay, and so uh, uh, after that, it is going to go back to the nation of Israel completely. We're seeing that transfer right now in human history. And so uh, I just want you to be aware of what's going on and to try to pay attention, especially to the first uh, verse that we're going to look at. And after that, um, uh, then we'll start into some things that are just building up for some of the most wonderful passages in all of scripture in the next couple of uh, sermons to go, uh, you know, as far as the uh, the proclamation of the Lord of who he is and uh, his commission of Moses and just amazing things that are coming up. But today is that transition. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read you the verses, which is Exodus 3. It's verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> uh, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. There are times when I struggle to fill up an evaluation of a passage to make an entire sermon. I don't like to add in fluff, but sometimes I need to because I, I'm trying to fill in something to make it a, the, you know, the same length as normal. But you know I'm not one to add in a lot of fluff. That's not what I like. Rather, I want to give you insights into what God is telling you and to let you add in the fluff with your own thoughts later so you can uh, gear your life towards you know, whatever application is good for you at that mm -hmm. moment in your life. But then there are times when I have to cut out so much from what I want to say that I actually cringe. And these six verses today are that way. They 
there simply is not enough space in a single sermon to cover it all. And even then, we're going to be a little bit long. Not a lot long, but just a little bit. I started to accumulate the material last year for this sermon on September 10th, when my Israeli friend, who happens to be here today, surprisingly, Sergio, emailed me about these verses. And I want to tell you something, because it's, uh, you know, uh, something that I like to highlight in my life is my friends. And he's one that uh, always inspires me because he asks a lot of Bible questions and he asks deep questions. Um, but a week ago, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'm going to say it anyway, just so that you know the type of person I'm dealing with. I got a, um, uh, a FaceTime uh, video of a Bible question from Sergio. And instead of the way that most people uh, give you a question, they email something and it's very technical and they, you know, I, I've got this question, can you please help me out with it? Sergio is sitting there in front of a video with his ukulele saying, Charlie, I've got a Bible question. And so he made a song out of his Bible question and it made it fun, it made it interesting and it gave all of us at the Bible study that uh, Sunday morning last week something to laugh at because this is the kind of person that I'm dealing with. But anyway, this is what happened uh, about a year ago on September 10th, Sergio emailed me about these verses, and I saved it, and it's a part of what we're going to look into today, and I hope you love details, because today is completely a sermon of details. No fluff for you today, okay? Our text verse comes from Ephesians chapter 1. It's the seventh verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Paul, writing to the Gentile church, says that we have redemption through the blood of Christ. If Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and we know he is, it says it explicitly three times in the New Testament and implicitly many, many more times, then what about the Jews? Are they included in this only individually, never to be considered as a united group again, or is this period of the Gentiles temporary until God again sets his attention on Israel? Does the Bible give us hints into these things as to which is correct and why? And the answer is, if you follow these things, an obvious yes. The Bible is replete with both pictures of what is coming as well as explicit prophetic references to it. I mean, all of the major and minor prophets talk about what's coming. All we have to do is research what he's telling us and it will all come out as he intends. Today's verses show us yet another picture of a period of time which is future to us even now when God will return his attention to his wayward people, Israel. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is tending to the flock. It's verse one. Verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Now we've seen beautiful patterns of history so far revealed in the first two chapters of Exodus. There was the time of Israel's rejection of Christ, just as Moses was rejected by his people. We saw the church age after that in the seven daughters of Reuel, representing the seven churches of the church age. Now we're seeing the time when God is getting ready to redeem Israel and bring them out of their place of hardship and bondage, leading them into the kingdom age. Matthew Henry clued into this pattern in part when he said the following, the years of Moses' life are remarkably divided into three forties. The first 40 he spent as a prince in Pharaoh's court. The second, a shepherd in Midian, which is kind of like the church age. And the third, a king in Jeshurun. Think of 
Christ sitting on his throne, the king from Israel. So he kind of clued into this. Israel has not been forgotten by him. And their period of trial and testing after exile will come to an end. It is pictured in Moses' next portion of life in which the call to that life begins to be seen in today's passage. Christ is, at this time in redemptive history, our good shepherd. He's the good shepherd of the church. He's leading the flocks of the church from the place of judgment, which is pictured by Moses tending to the flocks in Midian, which means exactly that, place of judgment. Here is Moses tending to the flocks, but immediately we have a new name, Jethro. He's identified as Moses' father-in-law in the priest of Midian. However, scholars debate as to whether this is the same man as Reuel, who we saw before or not. The term for father-in-law is also used to describe other marital relations, such as son-in-law, brother-in-law, etc. Some argue that if Reuel was older when Moses married his daughter, which was 40 years earlier, then this may be his son or his nephew who had become the high priest in his place. Without getting bogged down in that, what the account asks us to do is determine the meaning of his name, not really how he's related to Moses. Reuel, if you remember, means friend of God. He was used to picture the corporate body of people from whom the collective church is derived. As the seven churches are the friend of God, they willingly invited Jesus into their abode, just as Reuel willingly called Moses into his now we have a new figure, or at least a new name, Jethro. This comes from the word yatar, which means to remain over or to be at rest. The Ha theological word book of the Old Testament submits that this refers to one portion of a quantity which has been divided. Now think of the people of God and you divide it, Jew and Gentile, okay? So it's been divided. Generally, it is the smaller part, according to them, and sometimes it's the part of least quality. Therefore, Abarim translates the name Jethro as remnant. If Reuel was there to picture the time of the church age, then Jethro must be introduced for another reason. If the church age is ending and God is ready to restore Israel to its inherited place in redemptive history, then this name must be tied to that. This word yatar, from which Jethro is derived, is used in Ruth 2.18 concerning the food which Ruth, she ate some food and then she kept some back for her mother-in-law, Naomi. There it said this, so she brought out and gave to her, meaning to Naomi, what she had kept back, that word yatar, after she had been satisfied. That was a transfer of food from a Gentile to her Jewish mother-in-law. That story, if you know its meaning, showed Naomi as picturing Israel in captivity awaiting their restoration, which came at the end of the story of Ruth. This word yatar is also used in this set of verses from Ezekiel 39. If you know Ezekiel 39, it's the Gog Magog uh, passages. Here's what it says. When I have brought them back from the peoples, and remember, we're talking about Israel being restored after the church age, so it's all fitting. When I have brought the people back from the peoples and gather them out of their enemies' lands and am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who set them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none, that word yatar, of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. A study on this word yatar time and time again gives us hidden clues of the return of Israel to the land and to its exalted place as chief among the nations 
in the end times. It is fitting then that the name Jethro is introduced after Reuel. There is the church age, and then there is the restoration of the remnant of God's people, Israel, pictured by Jethro. Seemingly unimportant names actually bear directly on what is about to transpire and what will continue to occur even thousands and thousands of years later. Every detail fits like a God-manufactured glove, perfectly aligning with his redemptive plan. Verse 1 continues, And he led the flock to the back of the desert. It's right here in this portion of verse that my friend Sergio emailed me with questions concerning this passage. The words, to the back of the desert, are achar hamibar. Achar means behind or the following part. And it's also translated in some of your Bibles, it'll say west, okay? Instead of, you know, the uh, back of the desert, it'll say he took them west. The second word, hamibar, means the desert, In the Hebrew way of dividing points on the compass, if the east is before a person, then west is behind them. The south would be to the right and the north would be to the left. The east is a place of exile in the Bible. When Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, it was to the east that cherub was placed to guard entry back into the garden. When the tabernacle was erected, cherubim were woven into the veil, which then pointed east symbolizing restricted entry into the Holy of Holies, lacking access with God, just like we lack access with God in the Garden of Eden. When Moses died, he was buried where? East of Canaan as punishment for his transgression. And when Israel was exiled to Babylon, they went off east, all right? The east wind is used many times in scripture as a harsh and destroying concept. This is seen, for example, in Jeremiah 18, verse 17, which says this, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. And so more than a year before typing this sermon in September of 2013, Sergio emailed me with this comment. He said, interesting verse. There is a pattern in the Bible of going east is usually judgment and exile, which is exactly what I just talked to you about. East of Eden, east of Israel to Babylon, the east wind. But in this verse, right before Moses is called to lead the nation of Israel out of exile, he led his flock to the west of the mountain of God. He was specifically asking about what this was picturing. Well, one, I was too busy in life to get with it because sermons take a lot of time. And uh, uh, also, I didn't have all of the build-up information to this particular passage. So it would have taken a lot of time and effort. And I said, Sergio, we're going to be there eventually. And sure enough, a year later, here we are. And so... Understanding these pictures from what we've already seen, which have been drawn out from the preceding passages, what do you think this is picturing? I have an idea, and I'm going to share it with you at the end of this verse. Verse 1 continues for now. And came to Horeb. Horeb is the same mountain as Sinai. The names are used to indicate the same place, but the words are selected to be used for different reasons when they are, in fact, used. Horeb means arid or desert, which interestingly is very similar to the meaning of the name Zion, the mountain of Zion, which is the mountain of God, which in one sense means dry place. Verse 1 continues, on the mountain or the mountain of God. Now, once again, every single translation that I read failed to properly note what this says. In Hebrew, it says, El-Har-Ha-Elohim, to mountain the God. The definite article is before God, not mountain. 
This is showing us something in its specific and particular. If it was the mountain of God, it would have said Har Elohim, such as in the 68th Psalm. The 15th verse of the 68th Psalm uses that expression. Rather, it is the mountain of the God. It is intended to show that the flock is being taken to a specific location to worship the one true God. Later in chapter 4, we'll be told that Moses returns to Jethro, but the flock isn't mentioned. This is the first and the last time that it's referred to. Now, what is that picturing? Now, before I explain this and we go on, I'd like to continue with Sergio's thoughts from a year ago. All right. He said, Charlie, the translations are a bit off. Now, this is going to be a lot of information and I don't expect you to remember it, but try to grasp a little bit of what he's saying. Quite actually, a bit. You are correct. Ahar means after or behind, time, location. Together with the following word, it forms after desert, Ahar Hamidbar. So location-wise, if he was east of Mount Horeb and it's desert, then he would be going west. But here's another interesting point. And he says, most likely way overstated. The sentence in Hebrew goes like this. And then he says it in Hebrew. Ve'inachag et hatzon achar hamidbar ve'yavo el har elohim horba. Okay, that's what he typed. What's interesting is that the word midbar means word or mouth. For example, the bar Elohim, God's word. So it doesn't just mean the desert. It also means the word or mouth. All right. So you have the sentence could read like this. This is Sergio's analysis. This is his translation of this sentence. And he drove the herd of sheep, that's in brackets, according to the words, and he came to the mountain of God, Horeb. And then Sergio finished with the thought, probably changes nothing. Sergio, I got to tell you what, that changes everything. The dual meaning of this verse is showing us a picture of something. Sergio's thoughts are actually confirmed by another translator concerning word instead of desert. And so I have all of the confidence in the world that this is not stretching a thing. Abarim, who's a very reliable Hebrew source, states the following concerning the root words. Okay, These two root verbs are really quite adjacent in Hebrew thought. Note that the word midbar means wilderness or desert, and the related verb dabar means to speak. Exactly what Sergio had concluded. When Paul augments Isaiah's spiritual armor, he adds the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Words commonly protrude from one's mouth. And the mouth is typically, now get this, a wet place, not a dry place. But it should be noted that the Meribah incident, which is coming in uh, Exodus chapter 17, occurred at Horeb. So you have this dry mountain, but there's water coming out of this dry mountain. Behold, it says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So you've got this dry place with water pouring out of it. Now that may sound like way too much information, but let's look it over. The pictures have shown that Israel is in exile, and it is now the church age, okay? Suddenly, with almost no information in 40 years of his life that are given to us, nothing, absolutely nothing. We suddenly come to the end of the 40 years and Moses is heading west with his flocks. If east is exile and from whence comes destruction and the flocks are being led west, then it is to a place of safety and from whence comes life. Horeb means arid or desert. 
just as Zion, we're going to the heavenly Zion someday, means dry place. Now, it seems curious that the mountain of the God would be defined this way. But what is it that gives life? Water. The word proceeds from the wet place, the mouth. And the word of God is where the water of life issues from. Horeb, as Abarim noted, is where the water of the rock came from. Paul in the New Testament says this about that account. And they all drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So is anyone seeing it yet? In the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, and remember Zion means dry place. Where does the water proceed from? Last page of the Bible. It comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. And if you go back to the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden, there's water flowing out and it branches out in the four waterheads. And you get into later in the Bible, you have the book of Ezekiel. And at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, you've got this passage which says that water is going to come out of the throne in Jerusalem to water down in the desert. And it becomes, starts at ankle deep, goes knee deep, in the, you know, and then it goes down and it leaves some salty stuff down at the end, which is a picture of something. We're not going to get into that today. But at the very end of the Bible, it says the water is coming from the throne of God in the Lamb. It makes a perfect picture all the way through the Bible. So is anyone seeing it yet? Here is Sergio's translation again. And he drove the herd of sheep according to the words, and he came to the mountain of God, Horeb. Who does Moses picture? Christ Jesus. And Christ drove the herd according to the word and came to the mountain of the God, even to Horeb. Have you got it? What is this passage showing us? It is the transition from the church age where Israel will be redeemed by Egypt. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning the end of the church age? Here's the passage. For this we say by the word of the Lord, issuing from the mouth of God, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This transition verse is given, and I am completely convinced of it, to show us the end of the church age at the rapture, at the word of the Lord, without abusing either the text, the Hebrew, or the concepts which permeate scripture completely concerning Israel and the dispensational model. We can paraphrase the words this way, and Christ drove the flock, meaning the church, according to the word, and they came to the mountain of the God, even Horeb. We're going to that heavenly Mount Zion, and that is what that's picturing, the rapture of the church. Oh God, we wait for you to send your son for us, to guide us safely home to his side, and forever we will be with Jesus as we walk in heaven's expanse so wide. Thank you for this wondrous and sure promise, oh God. We praise you, for you have done such marvelous things for us. And we praise you now, ever shall we, when in heaven we trod, glorifying you for our precious lamb, our beloved Lord, Jesus. Our second thought today, the burning bush, which is verses two and three. Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. From this point on right here, the church age is over. A new direction takes place and the coming passage is given in preparation for that great working of God ahead as he delivers Israel from their bondage. And just this morning as I was practicing the sermon, I realized, you know what? This is Exodus 3.1. You get one verse about the church and then everything after that is about Israel. 
That's a perfect pattern to what it does in Revelation. The first three chapters of Revelation are all about the church. You get to Revelation 4, verse 1. It's about the church, and then the church is never mentioned again all the way up until the end of the book, chapter 19. So it's a perfect pattern of what's going on. He gives us just a one-verse picture of the rapture, and then off to his focus back on Israel after all of that time. All right? The Lord will now reveal himself to Moses in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Stephen refers to this incident in his speech to the elders in Israel in Acts chapter 7. Here are his words to him. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. From his words, we know that 40 full years have passed. Again, we should review the number, the meaning of the number 40 so that we can understand why this period of Moses' life was chosen. In his book, Number in Scripture, E.W. Bollinger says that 40 is associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. He further refines it to be a chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. The second period of 40 years has ended. And the second time of probation, trial, and chastisement is now over, which is exactly what happened to Israel in its history. This is specifically referred to by Isaiah when he wrote this in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now is the time for the captives to be released. Now is the time for Israel to be exalted. In this verse, though, there is no definite article in, the, in front of the word angel, but it's not necessary. There's only one Jehovah who will call out to Moses from this bush. And so translators rightly call him the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire. The word for flame here is the word laba. It's used only this once in the entire Bible. However, it comes from a word, lehaba, which is a common word for flame, but it also means blade, like the blade on a sword. To us, flames of fire appear like blades of a sword. And so the two concepts merge into one. The voice of the Lord is equated to flames of fire in the 29th Psalm. And the tongue is equated to a sword in Revelation 19. And so you can see the two concepts unite in this bush, the word of the Lord coming out in the flame. That's what's going on here. Verse 2 continues from the midst of a bush. There are lots of bushes in the world, aren't there? And there were certainly lots of bushes around Moses. And yet there is a definite article in front of the word bush. Only Young's literal translation got this one correct by stating the bush. It is specifically designating a specific bush. And so it dis does it dishonor to say a bush. The word for bush here is the Hebrew word sene. And it's used only six times in the entire Bible. It means thorny. Five of those times are right here in Exodus chapter 3. And the final time is in Deuteronomy 33 when referring to the Lord who dwelt in this bush. The New Testament also refers to it four times. Twice by Jesus and twice by Stephen. It is the word from which the word Sinai is actually derived, which means bush of the Lord. Although there are no commentaries on this, this is Charlie Garrett's speculation only, the Sene, or the thorny bush, which is the basis for the name Sinai, bush of the Lord, 
may be the very type of bush that was used for a crown of thorns on Christ's head. The six times that it's used in the Old Testament may be tied to the meaning of the number six, which is the number which relates to man. And therefore, it is pointing to the person of Jesus in his manhood. As the Lord dwelt in the bush in the Old Testament, he wore it as a crown of thorns in the new. Just speculation, but it's very probable, I would think. Verse 2 continues. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire. This certainly caught Moses' attention. Any fire, particularly in a bush, uh, would be visible from quite a distance. In the Bible, fire itself has a dual signification. First, it is something which destroys. You have fire and it destroys something. But it is also used, or I'm sorry, because it destroys, it's used as a uh, symbol of judgment and of wrath because of this. However, fire also has the ability to purify something. And it's often used this way as well in Scripture. Malachi chapter 3 uses it in this dual way, both in one verse or one section of verses. It is specifically speaking of the coming of the Lord in judgment and yet at the same time to purify his people. So listen to this. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Therefore, fire is a picture of the jealous desire of the Lord. He is jealous. He's jealous in love for his people, and yet he is jealous for his holy namesake as well. The fire will purify the people, and yet it will also destroy people as well. This is seen in the continuation of verse 2. But the bush was not consumed. The bush wasn't consumed in the fire, and thus it is not something which is set in contrast to the Lord but rather it is a representation of the work of the Lord himself. Israel is being prepared for purification, and yet as a whole, it won't be consumed. Think of the bush not being consumed. Think of Israel not being consumed. Likewise, God's divine judgment on Egypt will be poured out at exactly the same time. In the same way, Israel of the future is prophetically being pictured, just as Malachi and the other prophets of the Old Testament show us. They will be purified and yet they will not be totally consumed. At the same time, God's judgment and his wrath will come upon the entire unrepentant world. Verse 3, Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Here we're given another indication that Moses is the true author of this account. Rather than it being in his immediate area, whether on the path that he was on or whether it was right where he was standing, it says he will turn aside to see the great sight. It's just kind of a nuance that shows us that he must be the true author. And great this sight must have been, and for a very good reason. Why the bush does not burn. If you're in a dry and arid land, a bush that caught on fire may be unusual, but a bush that was on fire and didn't jump into a large blaze and almost as quickly die down would be astonishing. Things in such a dry place are brittle, and they'd be consumed in a moment, in a single flash. But this bush continued to burn after its expected time was over. There in the bush, the Lord patiently waited for Moses' curiosity to take over, and eventually it did. But even more amazing things will happen in regard to this bush here. Life-changing things. World-changing things. The fire of the Lord will go out in splendor. It will purify the people who bear his holy name. But on the unrepentant judgment and wrath it will render, 
Two purposes are accomplished with his burning flame. Great and awesome is the marvelous sight of the work of the Lord, both his judgment and his grace. What a marvelous display of his infinite might. Blessed is the Lord in his throne's holy place. It is wonderful blessing to behold the works of the Lord, which are written for us in his superior word. Our third thought, standing on holy ground, which is verses four through six. There is a form of Bible scholarship. Okay, and I want to bring this in, although it's not really related to the sermon, it bears on this next coming verse. This is a very confused and theologically inept form of Bible scholarship known as the documentary hypothesis. It means a document, and they have a hypothesis about this do document, okay? It suggests that the first five books of Moses, the Bible, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch to us, was actually derived not from Moses, but from four independent sources. It's become the standard in most liberal circles. If you go to a liberal sem seminary, they're going to teach you that this is the truth. And the reason why is to reconcile, as they say, perceived inconsistencies in the biblical text. In other words, these scholars, these liberal scholars, see only contradiction, confusion, and error in the pages of the Bible. And so instead of taking the time to research how to resolve these difficulties from a biblical perspective, they do so from a man-centered perspective. They divide the books of Moses up into four separate authors. The first one they call J, which stands for Jehovah. The next one they call E, which stands for Elohim, or the name of God in Hebrew. The third one they say D, which is the guy that wrote Deuteronomy. And then the fourth one they designate with a P, which is some priest that lived. And so what do they do? Line by line, these liberal scholars cut up the Bible and they claim, oh, this person wrote this line and this person added in this line. However, verse four of Exodus chapter three, along with about a billion other evidences, shows us how utterly ridiculous this type of theology is. Here's verse four. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. In one verse, it says the Lord, meaning Jehovah, and God or Elohim. One cannot ascribe this verse to J, the Jehovah writer, nor can they ascribe it to E, who's the writer about God in general. If they used the same term in both places originally, then anyone who revised it would have revised both of them, wouldn't they have? Liberal theology is both ungodly and it's perverse. And it's also about as stupid as a person can get. And I don't mean to be belittling of people, but when you take the Bible and you cut it up like this, you're showing an arrogance that is far beyond the pale. We are given an insight right in this verse into the nature of God, not an insanely convoluted look into the work of some crazy Jews who lived many, many hundreds of years after the life of Moses. Jehovah saw and God called. The Lord is God. As the Lord, he is the monitor of the covenant within creation. And as God, he is the one who is over there, who controls all of creation. Interestingly, and I checked this out for fun. I was just curious about it. It says in this chapter, chapter three, the Lord seven times. It says God 21 times. And the combined term, Lord God, three times. Thus you have three, seven, and 21, which is a multiple of seven and three. The stamp of divine perfection permeates the words of scripture that are recorded here. Not a confused grouping of irrelevant words. God calling to Moses from the bush shows us that an objective reality, not a mere vision is being described. The Lord is visibly and audibly present with Moses. Verse four continues, and said, Moses, Moses. 
Calling out a name or a word twice in the Bible is a way of showing emphasis. When Jesus wanted to emphasize his words, he would say, Amen, Amen. Or as we translate it in the English, we would say, Verily, Verily. Or maybe the NIV, he says, Truly, Truly. When the Jews wanted Jesus done away with, what did they shout out? Crucify, crucify. When God God calls out to one of his people for a matter of the utmost importance, he will call out their name twice. This happens to be the third time in scripture that God has fondly and purposely called out to a man in this fashion. The first time was in Genesis chapter 22, when the angel of the Lord called to the man of faith. It says there, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. The second time was in Genesis 46, when God called out to the man of family. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And now in the same climatic and emphatic fashion, God calls out the name of the man of the flock, Moshe, Moshe. And what I think is so interesting is that the Abraham account used the term Lord. The Jacob account used the term God. And in this verse, it says Lord and God. There's no mistake in the Bible. Everything is being shown and developed according to the wisdom of God. Verse 4 continues. And he said, here I am. When the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham with emphatic purpose, Abraham's immediate And certainly much relieved response because he had his knife about to go into his son. His response was, here I am. When God called out to Jacob in his emphatic and comforting way, Jacob's response was, here I am. Now, the same powerful voice with the same emphatic call goes out to Moses' ears. And his immediate response is, here I am. When the Lord calls to you, be it audibly or deep within the recesses of your soul, make sure to respond as these great men of God did. Here I am. Moses didn't see anyone around with a box of matches. There was no one standing around him to produce the call of his name. And there was no motion except the continuously burning flames which did not harm the bush. Moses knew that this was a divine visitation and his response reflected it. Here I am. Verse five, then he said, Do not draw near this place. Moses was probably curious about the fire that didn't consume, wanting to see if it was really a fire or not. And the welcoming voice, well, that called him, certainly had to be no threat. It knew him personally, and so it must be a friend at hand. And so in a manner of curiosity and feeling welcomed, he steps forward, not realizing that a distance is demanded between him and the great sight before him, which he beheld. Verse 5 goes on. Take your sandals off your feet. Not only was a distance required, but he was further instructed to remove his sandals. There's a lot to learn about shoes, their use, and their removal in the Bible. And this is true even though they're only mentioned about 35 times in the entire Bible. In this command, and it is a command, God is instructing Moses from one who is greater to one who is lesser. In essence, resign yourself to me. He is the possessor of and in authority over the land. Moses' shoes whether made by him or whether made by somebody else, were the work of man's hands. The footprints of Moses were created by God, implying God's mastery over him. There is a uniting of the created foot with the dust from which it was created. Nothing of human origin would be considered acceptable in the presence of such a place of holiness. This is seen later in Exodus chapter 20, which says this, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use a tool on it, you have profaned it. God made the stones, not man. 
If man's efforts are placed along with God's holiness, only defilement can take place. God calls, God sanctifies, and God glorifies. The process of holiness is and by God and by God alone. Only twice in the Bible is someone told to take off their shoes because the ground is holy. This is the first, and the second is in Joshua. So to understand this better, that account needs to be looked at. I'm going to read it to you. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come now. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. When two things or two similar occurrences are noted in the Bible, there is always a reason for it. There will be a contrast between those two, and yet they will confirm something. In the case of these two accounts, one is before Israel is delivered from bondage. One is after they have been safely led into the land of promise. He is the covenant-keeping Lord. One is outside of Canaan. One is in Canaan. The Lord is God over the whole earth, over both Jew and Gentile. In one, there is the Lord unseen and the voice of God from over there. In the other, there is the Lord visible, tangible, and in human form. The Lord is the incarnate word of God. He is Jesus. In one, he is the Lord who will give the law, the angel or the messenger of it. In the other, he is the Lord who defends the law which is given, the commander of the Lord's army. He is the Lord of the law, its herald and its upholder. For these and certainly many other reasons which I didn't think of, we are given these two accounts to compare and to ponder. Verse 5 goes on. For the place where you stand is holy ground. The word holy here is the word Kodesh. This is the very first time it's used in the entire Bible. So far, over 2,500 years of human history have been recorded, and yet this is the first mention of anything connected to God's holiness since the creation. A parallel word to Kodesh is Kadash, which means to sanctify. That has been used just once in the Bible thus far in the creation account itself used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where it says God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. But from this point on, the two terms cumulatively will be used about 640 times. The holiness of God is being introduced now. Because the man of God and this son of Levi will be the human mediator of God's law for his chosen people. He is being taught right now a lesson of God's holiness, which he will carry with him all of the days of his life. He will even see on many, many occasions what it means to step over the bounds of propriety concerning the holiness of his creator and his Lord. This will be seen in others, both within the covenant community and without, and it will be seen in himself as well. His final resting place will be outside of the land of promise because he will fail to take it to heart for a brief moment, just a brief moment of anger. And that account is recorded in Numbers chapter 20. And I want to read it to you. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, because he was only supposed to speak to the rock, not strike the rock. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Here, though, Moses now stands on holy ground, or literally, as the Hebrew says, ground of holiness for the first time. It is ground which has been rendered holy by the presence of God upon it. And so let us remember this ourselves as we conduct our affairs in his presence. Verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The word father here in the Hebrew is singular. It's not plural. This then indicates First, that he is identifying himself with the God of Amram, his father, Moses' father, okay? But for but whom also was worshipped by the 12 patriarchs before him. However, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this in the plural form. He focused on the combined patriarchs for the benefit of the ruling council. Now, why would this be? It is because Stephen was addressing the Jews, but there is more than the Jews in God's plan. Abraham was the father of who? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the father of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs, as well as the adoptive father of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim would become known as the fullness of the Gentiles when Jacob prophesied over him. And therefore, the entire scope of humanity is included in the words to Moses right now. Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3 when he says that we, Gentiles, become sons of Abraham by faith. Yes, he is the God of the Hebrews, but he is the God of all creation and over all mankind, be they from Ishmael, Esau, Ephraim, or from any other group of people. If they call on Christ, they become sons of Abraham by faith and sons of God through adoption. Verse 6 continues, and Moses hid his face. Two commands were given to Moses. Do not draw near this place and take your sandals off your feet. Now, in an expression of, I mean, overawed dread, Moses adds in a third aspect of man in the holy God's presence. He actually hides his face from his glory. He suddenly has an insight into God that he had never before contemplated, one which Jesus actually later explained to the leaders of Israel when he said this in Luke 20. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The expression the God of Abraham enlightened Moses to the fact that his fathers, even to Abraham, continued to exist. God can only be the God of that which exists, not of things that don't exist. And therefore, he is the God over time and outside of time. He is eternal and he is unchanging. When God reveals himself in such wondrous ways, the only thing one can do is hide their face from it. Elijah found this out on this exact same mountain many, many years later when he wrapped his face in a mantle at the call of God. Even the seraphim of God, the burning ones, are said to hide their face before his presence. When one truly comprehends the holiness of God, it is so far above the five senses that the only reaction to seeing it is that of fear. And it finishes with these words, for he was afraid to look upon God. Again, the translation, I believe, is lacking. It says, Yare mechabit ha Elohim. He was afraid to look at 
the God. The definite article shows the sudden and overwhelming realization of Moses that he is in the presence of the God, the one true and only God. He had left the land of many gods, which was Egypt. Then for many years, he lived in Midian, but now he is suddenly found to be in the presence of the God, and he's in fear to look upon him. In the future, he's going to talk face to face with him like a friend, and the glory will be such that it will continue to reflect off of his own face. He will have to veil it from the people because of their fear at the glory which they see radiating off of his face. Such is the splendor and the glory of God who rules over time, over space, and over matter. His glory is infinite, and he is holy. Someday all flesh will come before him for judgment. On that day, those who are not covered in the righteousness of Christ will be consumed by what their eyes behold. With that memory forever burned into their mind, they will be cast from his presence for all eternity. There they will suffer the pain of what their eyes had beheld in relation to their fallen state. It will eternally consume them. It will infinitely destroy them. But God gives us hope and he gives us a choice. He graciously offers us terms of peace and purification from the sins that we bear that is found in the giving of his son, Jesus. Through Christ, we can be restored to a propitiously perfect place with God, covered by his blood and reckoned pure and holy because of it. So please give me just another minute to explain to you how you can receive that. The Bible says that you have sinned. The Bible says that God has a plan to take away your sin. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's so simple. It's a hard thing to do internally, but it's such a simple thing to actually do. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call out to Jesus and say, Lord, I understand that you are the God that came to die for me and to give your life on the cross and you can take away my sin, he will do it and he will give you his covering of righteousness. So when you do stand finally in the holy God's presence, you won't be infinitely destroyed. You will be infinitely purified for all eternity, becoming more and more like God, purified in his presence, ever pursuing his wisdom, his glory. And everything that we see on this earth that is so absolutely wonderful is just nothing compared to what we will see from radiating from him for all of eternity. So if you haven't called on Jesus Christ as Lord, do it today. Let him cover you with his righteousness and be reconciled to God your Father. All right? Our closing verse today, pay attention, Paul Stoll. Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you weren't here at the beginning of the service, you wouldn't know why I said that. But it's the Lord working, isn't it? He always weaves things together so perfectly. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he's got a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I've got a poem for you today based on these six verses. It's called Standing on Holy Ground. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, you know, and he led the flock to the back of the desert. He did trod and came to Horeb to the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. To his eyes, this wondrous sight came. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. It certainly made his mind inquire. 
Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn somehow, and yet it gives off the fire's light. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and here I am, said he. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground, where you and I now meet. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob too. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God, and so he kept him from his view. How do we treat God as a friend? Yes, it is so. And yet he is also our Lord to whom honor is due. We can be friendly with God because of Jesus, you know, but we should do it so with holiness, his holiness in view. Let us honor him and thus grant to him glory. And to him, let respect and praise come from each of us as we hail the lamb who is the center of the gospel story with resounding shouts of praise to our magnificent Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing Darla here today. Her back was hurting so bad last night. We didn't know if we'd see her. And here she is in our presence with us, worshiping you and hearing about your glorious word. And I was hoping she'd come because she is one of those people that just aches for the rapture to occur. She's like me. So thank you for bringing her here safely. And I would ask that you would take each person here home safely. Some have a bit to travel, 18 hours. Some have a little less, three or four. And some of us have got a few minutes to go. But I would ask that you would tend to each of us as we drive home today. And we want to thank you for your wondrous word. Oh, it is so far beyond our comprehension how glorious your word is. It is so precious. It is so beautiful. Thank you for every single stroke that is recorded there to teach us something about who you are and how much you love the people of the world to give us this in the first place. And above all, thank you for the gift of your son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom all praise is due. Because when we praise him, you are satisfied with that and you receive your glory, O God. So we praise you in his name. And we offer you our praise forever. Hallelujah and amen.